It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast. I'm Josh Rollerson. Dealing with climate change means drastically reducing the amount of carbon, mainly CO2 and methane, that's in the atmosphere. To do that, we need to use less energy and get more of it from clean and renewable sources. But that's only part of the solution. To get to net zero and beyond, carbon sequestration will need to be in the picture. Industrial emitters have already invested billions in technologies to capture carbon pollution at the source. Even more expensive and technologically ambitious efforts are underway to pull carbon directly from the air. Many of these ideas show promise, but implementation at scale is another matter. There's also the problem of what to do with all that captured gas. Some of it could be put to industrial use, and yeah, the prospect of a commercial market for sequestered CO2 is a bright spot. Most of it, though, would have to be compressed and injected underground. And there are still some unanswered questions about the long-range viability of that solution. But what if there was a way to direct capture carbon from the atmosphere and put it to productive use right away without relying on middlemen, new technologies, or massive infrastructure investments? What if, by doing so, you could begin to solve a whole range of other related and unrelated environmental and economic problems? And what if the answer was something we're already doing, something humans have been doing for almost as long as there have been humans? On this episode, we're talking about farming and how it can play a role in mitigating climate change. Yes, modern industrial agriculture is a leading source of climate changing emissions, but it doesn't have to be that way. If managed with sustainable and regenerative methods, farms can be a big part of the solution. I know with something like uh, like 70 tons of carbon per acre capacity, farmers really can be a honestly an outsized player in mitigating the risks associated with climate change. Pennsylvania has over 7 million acres of farmland, and more than 280,000 Pennsylvanians currently work in agriculture. That's a huge opportunity, not just to reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions, but to do it in a way that centers farmers, supports rural communities, promotes stewardship, and, let's not forget, feeds people. We'll explore all those possibilities coming up on this episode. First, let's get caught up on environmental energy, conservation, and outdoor recreation news from the last week with Pex Lily Jones. Pennsylvania's bid to link with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is still alive after Governor Tom Wolf vetoed a measure that would have blocked participation in the 11-state carbon market. The General Assembly passed the concurrent resolution in December. Lawmakers now have a month to attempt an override, though the original measure was passed without a veto-proof majority. Since Reggie's 2008 launch, participating states have reduced their CO2 emissions at almost double the national average, while their economies outpace GDP. As the nation's top exporter of electricity, Pennsylvania stands to bring in millions in new revenue to be invested in clean energy and support for communities affected by the transition. Modeling from the Department of Environmental Protection projects a nearly $2 billion boost to the state's economy and more than 30,000 new jobs by 2030 under Reggie. Legislation introduced this month by State Senator Sharif Street would advance another key climate initiative focusing on power generation. Senate Bill 979 would reform Pennsylvania's existing alternative energy portfolio standards into a clean energy standard to promote low and net zero carbon electricity production, a move Peck has advocated for for years. The measure would expand requirements for generating power from renewable sources while promoting emerging technologies like advanced nuclear and carbon capture. 
Peck recently published a fact sheet explaining how a clean energy standard would work and why it matters for the climate. Find it at peckpa.org. Pennsylvania continues to lag in meeting its clean water commitments under the Chesapeake Bay Clean Water Blueprint, according to the latest multi-state assessment from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Agricultural and municipal sources account for the bulk of nitrogen pollution entering the bay. CBF's Allison Prost says the failure affects Pennsylvania as well as its downstream neighbors. And equally as important, the ability to restore local waterways. Because if the Pennsylvania waterways are not clean, the downstream bay will not be clean. But if action is taken on the ground in Pennsylvania, we'll see improvements in both. Earlier this week, Pennsylvania revealed an updated version of its Phase 3 Watershed Implementation Plan, which says it would achieve 100% of its pollution reduction commitments by 2025. One step the state could take would be establishing an Agricultural Conservation Assistance Program, or ACAP, which would fund projects for farmers to plant pollution-filtering riparian buffers along waterways. Harry Campbell of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation says the proposed Clean Streams Fund would use a portion of the state's American Rescue Plan funds for the ACAP program. By passing that legislation to establish the Clean Streams Fund, Pennsylvania has the opportunity to substantially improve water quality, not only in our own backyard, but meet our Chesapeake Bay commitments as well. The 2022 Pennsylvania Farm Show opened last week in Harrisburg with remarks from Pennsylvania Ag Secretary Russell Redding, who took the occasion to emphasize the role of youth in the future of farming. This complex provides an opportunity for each of these young men and women to lead uh, this industry, to hone their skills uh, and dedicate uh, their life's work to agriculture. But in an industry where the median age has risen to over 57, how do you keep young people in farming and keep their farms profitable? Well, our guest today says the next generation of farmers is interested in methods that will restore degraded soil, thereby increasing the value of their land while improving water quality, wildlife habitat, and other environmental factors. Such regenerative practices can also help reduce carbon pollution, and that's an increasingly important motivator for climate-conscious young farmers. Ideas like these are the focus of the upcoming Sustainable Agriculture Conference in Lancaster, being hosted by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Hannah Smith-Brubaker is PASA's executive director and joins us now. Hannah, welcome. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be with you today. To start us off, can you kind of uh, explain broadly the role of soil and particularly, you know, agricultural soil in the carbon cycle, where does uh, where does uh, farming and and the like the ground level, literally ground level material of farming interface with the with the climate? Well, the way I like to think about it is the way we think about the human body and our skin. You know, there's an awful lot that goes on underneath that skin that we don't see, um, but helps keep us alive, and is constantly interacting with the environment around us. And so the soil can do things like sequester carbon, participate in the plants exchange through photosynthesis of that sort of dynamic relationship between the environment and what is underground, or it can honestly be rather dead and not engage in that cycle. And so it's really through our farming practices that we're making decisions every day, what role are we going to have soil play? 
Yeah, and I hope we can explore kind of uh, what those practices are, how they fit together, and how they kind of reinforce one another. A little bit more table setting first, though. Can you talk about the sort of the global climate impact of farming, including obviously the the sort of dominant non-regenerative practices? What is like the global carbon footprint of agriculture? Yeah, so um, interestingly, there while there are many other, for lack of a better term, industries that are participants in sort of this growing climate crisis, you know, whether it's like residential, industrial, agriculture, because it's everywhere all over our planet, can have um, outsized impacts on on our local um, communities and, and the environment in places where we find that there are practices primarily where we find that the ground stays in cover, we have a lot of opportunity to be ahead of the game in terms of mitigating a lot of the risks associated with climate change. In a lot of other areas, particularly in more developed countries, certainly here in the US, where it's been a more extractive type of agriculture and not a lot of emphasis on keeping the ground covered, we not only are not helping the environment, we are adding to this climate crisis. And so, yeah, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that today, but it really is getting to the point where, and I include myself in this because while I am executive director of PASA, I am a farmer myself. So every day we're making choices about what role we're gonna have in this crisis. I think it would be helpful to have uh, some specificity to this idea of regenerative farming. Well, what we're talking about exactly, what does it do for the soil and why does that matter from a climate standpoint? Yeah, so it used to be for millennia that we understood that growing food was part of a whole system. And so we couldn't be taking more from the land than what we were giving back or we wouldn't have soil to grow in. And as often happens, um, you know, as as industries grow, as agriculture grew, as our planet um, has grown, we have sided often larger nations on this extractive type of agriculture um, that is taking more away from the land than what we're giving back. And there will be Uh, consequences for that. So many of us who have been either through multiple generations or in returning to farming are focusing on a lot of that indigenous knowledge around farming as part of a broader ecosystem, understanding that if we are not giving back to the soil, (laughs) we there isn't going to be soil to grow food in. And so we can't just keep fulfilling this sort of get as much as you can out of it. So what we've really been focusing on is seeing the farm as a whole system. And that means that, yes, we want practices that allow us to grow food and provide a good living for our families and can support our local communities, but we also want to make sure that not only are we um, not having in the end a negative impact on the earth, but in fact, 
improving it as well. So we're regenerating it. And so we want to have practices that are um, really in the end going to be leaving the earth better than we found it. That's essentially the goal of regenerative agriculture. So that means getting carbon back into the soil, getting nutrients, uh, getting that that uh, microbiome really healthy and thriving. You submit one of the ways that happens is through through cover. Um, what are the other sort of the, the the core techniques of the regenerative farming you know approach? Yeah, well, if I could just say a little bit more about the cover piece because I'm really Please. passionate about this. <laughs> I think it's probably the most most important is not only does this, you know, when we say keeping it in cover, we're talking about, you know, if we are tilling, planting cover crops so that there is green matter, um, ideally focusing on perennial crops so it's always in green cover. And then we might be able to touch on a little later this um, concept of agroforestry. Again, another really old practice, but the introduction of uh, trees and shrubbery into agriculture as well. But not only does that living cover do things like keeping the soil cool, which supports that microbiome that you talked about, uh, it prevents the soil from being very compacted. So those roots are in there sort of um, messing around, doing what they need to do, keeping that soil loose. But one of the things that um, at PASA we've been focusing on quite a bit lately is the ability for that soil to absorb additional water. So we know that for every percentage of um, soil organic matter on one acre, every time we increase that by a percent, that's an additional 20,000 gallons of water that can be absorbed in these increasing deluges of rain that we're getting. And so you think about that sort of, um, if you think about the amount of farmland in Pennsylvania, for example, and if we all focused on increasing our soil organic matter by a percent, that, that's talking about billions of gallons of additional water that can be absorbed. And, and so there, that's a benefit for our neighbors, not only for the impact on their houses, but honestly, for their flood insurance yeah. rates. So, you know, all of that is sort of tied up in this cover. I would add to, to cover um, and related lessening the degree to which we're disturbing that soil. So either using conservation tillage, if we have to, we know, for example, on organic farms organ and vegetable farms, controlling weeds without chemicals is a very complex and difficult job. So there is often tillage involved, but the more we can do things like no-till, um, where essentially we're just, uh, you know, rolling or in some cases doing some row crop uh, farmers doing no-till are still doing one chemical burn off a year, but we're essentially leaving that green cover and just rolling it and planting into it. Certainly the integration of animals. So we've gone through decades of sort of segregating animals into confined situations, capturing their manure, in many cases, then spraying that manure back on feed crops, which then we're harvesting and feeding to the animal. Um, we have really been focusing on grazing as a way not only to 
get the animals back on the land so that they can be returning nutrients to the soil directly, but also all of the things that animals do to sort of um, prime that soil again for high absorption rate um, and healthy crops that are holding the soil in place again. So when we get these rains, it's not running off and there's tremendous erosion. Yeah, okay. So we're, we're talking about ecosystems that evolved a long time ago with like herds of ruminants moving through. That's a big part of, you know, making the soil what it was and keeping it that way. So you're, you're kind of simulating that a little bit when you're grazing livestock, if you're doing it right. So I, I, that's fascinating to me because we keep hearing you know, one of the best things you can do as a consumer to lessen your impact on climate change is eat less meat or eliminate meat from your diet. And like you see how that advice works because of the way most meat is produced in our society. But if you were doing it right, would it be going too far to say that the opposite is true? Like, can meat production be a carbon sink effectively? I mean, we, we know it's good for the soil if you're using the right practices. It's going to regenerate the soil underneath. That's going to be better for growing crops. But is there a measurable impact on carbon sequestration associated with, uh, you know, with livestock? Yeah. So there are some who would say, yes, the opposite is true. And I think it's more nuanced than that. I think, yes, we need to eat less meat for all sorts of reasons. But the landscape without animals is not as healthy. I am an organic vegetable farmer. And I can, I can tell you myself that the integration of our pastured sheep onto our land produces a better vegetable, produces better soil, um, increases my production. And so what those sheep have been able to do to pasture, now, now we typically are keeping our vegetable fields when they're resting out of production for a good three years, so allowing those animals to really regenerate that soil during that time has a lot of benefits down the road. And so I would say we could probably all eat less meat, but it's really important to have animals on the land. Um, it, it is definitely better for the soil. And I think, honestly, even if you're a vegetarian, it's better for your vegetables in the long run. You mentioned, uh, you know, agroforestry a moment ago, and that's one thing I've been reading about lately is the silvipasturing. Can you talk, and maybe not just focusing on that specifically, but the, the agroforestry concept in general, how does that work? Yeah. So again, another very old practice that we're sort of rediscovering. It's just the idea that you're bringing perennial crops into agricultural setting you mentioned silvopasturing. So this is essentially like planting trees in pastures, which is great for providing animal shade. Right. We know that actually feed conversion for animals in terms of what they're eating and how that translates to their weight is much improved with shade. <laughs> with climate change and the climate's getting much hotter um, and you've got animals out on pasture without any shade, it does have an impact. Alley cropping, which is another agroforestry practice, is essentially planting crops in rows between these trees. And so that could be um, a grain crop, it could be vegetables, it could be, um, we do a lot of, we actually have about five acres of agroforestry installation on our own farm. Um, we do a lot of experimenting with different types of cover crops 
that our animals are going to come through and eat between those rows of trees. So they've got the shade. Sometimes those trees themselves have pods on them that are edible for, for, the, for the animals. The other thing that, that's really important in these systems is how much it is, for example, slowing down wind, slowing down rain, all of these things that contribute to erosion. And if you've got agroforestry as sort of a complement, perhaps to your riparian buffer, if you have one on your farm around your creek, um, that's another, you know, way of keeping the water clean as well. And we haven't even touched on that, all of this regenerative agriculture, including agroforestry, the potential for, for clean water. Yeah, let's let's expand on that a little bit, because I mean, if, if you're concerned about nutrients in the Chesapeake Bay, if you're concerned about, you know, uh, excess stormwater in, in more populated areas, it all kind of comes back to, uh, you know, again, these things connect together. Tell me more about the broader dividends uh, in terms of water quality that are paid out by improved farming practices? Well, aside from, you know, just obviously the benefits for us all of having cleaner water, (laughs) when we've got these buffers, it is improving habitat for everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's improving habitat for fish. (laughs) You know, it's improving because it's cooling the water, it's slowing the water down. So, you think about how much it improves that habitat for fish, it's the same for people. Now, that improvement might not be realized on your farm. It might be realized on the farm down the road or the the house that's further downstream from you. But you're essentially creating this huge filter that everything that's coming into your farm is going through. Now, some of us who, you know, I live in a very rural area, we can access municipal water, we can access creek water if we need it for irrigation. We also have uh, probably about 50,000 gallons of rainwater storage tanks as well. So we use all three depending sort of on the weather and our needs. I can have in a heavy rain dark, dark water coming into my farm. And our farm is the last farm on the Lost Creek before it pours into the Juniata River. And I can see when it's coming through our buffer, how quickly that water cleans up compared to what I'm seeing further upstream where there are no no trees, no herbaceous cover at all around the streams. And so it really is that old adage of, you know, caring about the person downstream from you. And I consider it as a farmer as much a part of my responsibility to be a good neighbor as I do to grow food for those neighbors. And so it's, I can't stress enough that whole making sure that this concept of cover on our lands also extends to around our waterways as well. We've been coming at this from, you know, an environmental angle, obviously, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. Can you talk about the range of benefits and not just in an environmental context, but economically, right? You mentioned yields. Tell me more about that. Why reasons why farmers might want to pursue these kinds of practices, you know, for totally unrelated to environmental reasons. Yeah. So if we look at the economic perspective, starting with the the long term, you know, I mentioned earlier 
we want to make sure that we have soils that are going to grow food for a long time. And so from the long-term perspective, this really is an investment. It's an investment in your ability to continue to grow food down the road. Right. In the short term, talking, you know, sort of in a year-to-year basis, many trials have shown that doing things like um, planting pollinator strips between two vegetable rows greatly increases the production rate um, of those vegetables. We need those pollinators to be around. We know we've all heard about this in terms of bees and butterflies and um, how agriculture has contributed to their reduction. And so anything that we can do on our farms to promote an increase um, that insect biodiversity is going to increase our vegetable and fruit production. When it comes to animals, I mentioned earlier, the addition of shade and certainly the health of that green cover that's growing in the soil by paying attention to things like not applying chemicals and allowing that biodiversity to flourish, not uh, introducing tillage unless absolutely necessary, and if so, using conservation tillage. All of these things, sort of understanding the natural habitat of animals, their natural behaviors, what they naturally are built to digest. You know, our, our sheep eat nothing but grass. In the wintertime, they're eating the dry hay grass that we grew, cut. So that's all they're ever eating. Those weights on that animal can be higher than grain fed. They can be lower. It really depends. But when you're looking at the quality of the meat, a lot of the attributes of the protein, vitamins, minerals, there's a lot to be gained by feeding animals what naturally they're, they're yeah. meant to eat. So, so okay, given all of, all of this good news, right? These are all really attractive prospects. How widespread is the adoption of these practices? Why isn't it further along? What uh, might be pain points or reasons for reluctance for farmers to change the way they do things? I have to say that I believe we are at a turning point and I see a lot of farmers starting to return to some of the reasons why they started farming in the first place. <laughs> you know, I don't want to make it too sort of quaint and lifestyle focused, but really being able to have healthy environments to raise our children in, to live in, to kind of contribute to our community is part of the farming lifestyle. And I see a lot of farmers today, um, particularly some of the row crop farmers that are practicing no-till, boy, they are really improving their soils and they're starting to see it. So one of the things that we didn't touch on was PASA's research studies. We've just finished up our fifth year of our soil health benchmark study. And the, the great part about that study is it combines organic vegetable farmers, no-till row crop farmers, and pastured livestock farmers. These are three groups that aren't always in the room together. And so they're all comparing notes based on their, their soil health um, measurements and saying, hey, like 
I see we have the same level. What are you doing? What are you doing? And often they are not doing the same thing. It is not in fact that yes, we know certain practices are beneficial, but it's not always the same prescriptive practices for every land that really um, results in these benefits. And so those conventional no-till row crop farmers are really getting good at this, you know, not disturbing the soil. And then you've got an organic vegetable farmer who maybe for weeds has been doing a good bit of tillage, but also very intentionally returning nutrients to the soil, either through animals, um, through vermiculture, through compost, and they're learning from each other. We have noticed this trend. It's a pretty significant trend with our vegetable farmers in our study that they are reducing their tillage. Hmm. And we've noticed in the conventional row crop farmers, they are reducing their chemical application. And that, that to me, when, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about sort of um, when we were talking over the podcast about the sort of policy and um, what's going on at the federal and state level, incentivizing farmers to get together and compare notes, particularly where they are involved in citizen science on their own farms, in my experience, is one of the most powerful ways to change people's behavior. And uh, that's a nice segue into talking about your conference that's upcoming. Uh, this would be an opportunity to uh, compare notes and learn from one another. Well, yes, absolutely. I, I hope everyone will attend. We have two options this year. The whole month of January will be a virtual um, pre-conference and we'll have workshops all week long, every week. And then uh, in February, we have our in-person conference we're giving it a try. <laughs> We've all been apart from each other, you know, for a couple of years now. Last year we were strictly virtual. And so um, we're really looking forward to being together again. Of course, we're taking very stringent COVID precautions, but if people are interested and they want to um, visit our website at pasafarming.org, they can to check out what we have in terms of workshops with a broad range of both practical workshops and theoretical and networking. And we hope that we'll be able to see everybody there. Okay. So let's backtrack and talk policy. What are the policy measures, maybe market incentives or other kind of external forces that could be leveraged to drive more widespread adoption of regenerative climate-friendly farming practices? What do we need at the policy level? Yeah. So we really need increased funding specifically for soil health. We want every state to have some version of a soil health council that's looking specifically at the soil health needs of their own state. Through the farm bill, this last farm bill, there was increased funding for conservation. We want this next farm bill, which will be in 2023 at the federal level, to really focus on conservation and soil health the current Build Back Better bill that is in Congress has a good number of provisions for uh, soil-related work. Also, of course, it, it contains that um, return of the CCC, which you know many of us know from years ago, only this time 
actually has an agricultural component. So we could have um, volunteers come out to farms and work on agriculture conservation um, practices. I think overall, the more we can be steering away from federal policies that are feeding money into more extractive practices and more money into regenerative and specifically soil health as a way to ensure that we can continue to grow food far into the future, ensure that we are prepared for all of these risks coming with climate change, make sure that we can have you know, healthy communities for our neighbors downstream. Those are so important. And so the more we can talk to our congressional members about supporting increased funding, for example, through NRCS for the Conservation Stewardship Program or EQIP, a lot of the, the more recent research coming out of N NRCS is very innovative and it is starting to really recognize these practices that farmers can implement on their land. Number one for me is cover crops. <laughs> Anything that's gonna incentivize farmers to keep their ground in cover. Overall, in the conversations we've had, it's been really about farmers taking on the responsibility to figure out exactly what role they can play in this journey we're on that really is reaching near, near crisis point and, and reclaim that role of, of conservationist. We no longer believe that you know, growing food and conservation have to be polar opposites. In fact, not only can they work in parallel, but they can benefit each other. What about state level? What's, what's happening in Harrisburg? What could be happening in Harrisburg that's of interest to you? So our state had the first ever, you know, statewide farm bill, the Pennsylvania farm bill uh, introduced several years ago has been really great for supporting a lot of research around soil health. So Department of Agriculture has been instrumental in, in supporting a lot of the research that's going on on the ground around um, soil health and other strategies for climate mitigation. Also at the state level, there have been some conversations about um, what we're calling sort of pathways to soil health, how we can have funding be directed toward any of those um, practices that I mentioned earlier. We haven't convinced our state legislators yet um, to put money behind it, but it is something that we've got about 30 partners that are working on this sort of pathways to soil health concept that I'm hopeful, of course, will begin with, with cover cropping, but really spread out to a lot of the other practices over the next couple of years. So there has not been a formal bill introduced yet, but we're working on it. And, and is there a role for, for local governments to play? And you see counties, maybe some municipalities and like, you know, land trusts are, are increasingly saying farmland preservation is important. Some of them are getting involved in that. Uh, what, what do you see happening locally? Absolutely. I, I know of, um, you know, townships and municipalities starting to write climate preparedness <laughs> plans, um, being more when they're, when they're rating, 
um, at the county level farms for enrollment in some of the conservation easement programs, looking at their conservation practices. Some have special easement programs that are going to give a farmer a higher rate um, at enrollment because of their conservation practices. And then just, um, you know, if you're looking at the basics of water quality, erosion, even how, you know, some of our township roads and how the way the water moves and is impacting farmland and residences, working with farmers to be installing practices that work toward further absorption of rain. We didn't talk about drought very much today, but just sort of that interplay of short-term droughts and deluges of rain that impacts every township and municipality. And so we've got to be working in partnership to be better prepared for, I think, what will be an increase in those areas. Yeah. And again, having, um, you know, having more organic matter in the soil, having better water retention is going to help on both sides of that coin, right? Too much water, not enough water. Can we talk a little bit about like the succession piece and the next generation of farmers, you see like a mindset change among a lot of people that are already in this industry. Are, are you seeing interest, uh, you know, from outside of the you know, people that maybe aren't from farm families, aren't from a farm background getting into this field, so to speak? Is that something you're seeing? Yes. I would say that there's sort of three areas that we're talking about a lot these days. One is the next generation who will not come back to the farm unless their parents are open to more regenerative practices. Um, the other would be in terms of equity. Um, you know, we, we know that a lot of farmers of color do not have the type of land access um, that they need to have. And so there is this movement afoot with white farmers to ensure that the next generation on their farm um, is ensuring equitable access to farm to farming. And in that whole equity arena, we see a lot of those farmers talking about regenerative agriculture for sure. We see a lot of, of people retiring from other types of work and coming into farming. And then the last would be specific to preserved farms. We know, you know, right now the Department of Agriculture has a program specifically for farms that have an easement placed on them to support the transition to the next generation. And so there's a little, it's not a lot of funding, but it's funding to cover some of the, you know, legal costs or um, consultation costs associated with that. Even within that, you know, the preserved farm arena, there's a lot of conversation about these special easements that really reward conservation. And so we see, again, maybe it is the next generation, but they're getting that farm under an easement and transitioning to more regenerative practices. How would you characterize the prospect of the carbon offsets market or something or some kind of a carbon market being uh, a source of income, a meaningful source of income for small farmers. Hmm. You look skeptical. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things I run into with current regenerative agriculture farmers is a honestly a bit of resistance 
to compensation where it's to allow another player to not <laughs> to sort of in their mind, like get away with something right. on the one hand, if we can do anything to increase the likelihood that farmers are going to attempt to sequester carbon, we want to do that, you know, with something like, uh, like 70 tons of carbon per acre capacity farmers really can be a honestly an outsized player in mitigating the risks associated with climate change. I'm curious how on the ground this will play out. Again, you know, if we can get a large monocropped farm to become more diversified in the name of capturing carbon, even if it is to offset a player who's contributing I suppose that that is beneficial in terms of it being sort of a cash crop, if you will say, for a farmer. Yeah, we'll have to see. I guess maybe optimistically, it could at least be a way to get a foot in the door, kind of, and people begin to change the way they do things. They see all these other ancillary benefits, see how how they're connected together, and that maybe takes on a life of its own. Yeah. I mean, I'm a real believer that just have as many tools in your tool belt as, as you can. And people, they do things for all different types of motivations. You know, I think often we underestimate the breadth of the types of things that motivate people. And, you know, honestly, thinking back to some of the more recent adopters of organic agriculture who maybe got into it for the you know market advantage some of those farmers are our most staunch advocates for the conservation benefits right now so as i'm talking to you about this <laughs> i'm feeling more open and hopeful um and i can see honestly yes if 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 we can motivate farmers to capture more carbon, I I say, let's do it. All right. Well, Hannah Smith Brubaker from PASA Sustainable Agriculture, thank you so much for your time today. It's a great conversation. Thank you, Josh. That's Hannah Smith Brubaker of PASA Sustainable Agriculture, formerly the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. Their annual conference returns in person in February. There is a virtual pre-conference going on right now. You can find information about how to participate in both by visiting our website, peckpa.org, and checking out the show notes for this episode of the podcast. We'll link you to all the information you need. And while you're there, hope you'll take a moment to look around and get caught up on Peck's work in policy governing energy and climate issues, as well as outdoor recreation, watershed health and quality, reforestation, and a lot more information all at PECPA.org. Pennsylvania Legacies comes out every other Friday. You can listen to our past episodes on the PEC website again, PECPA.org, or on your podcast platform of choice. Hope you'll join us for the next one. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening.